Welcome to On the Wink Podcast with Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever. Joining me for, uh, I guess we could call it part two of our pollinator discussion. We've uh, threw names in a hat and picked out some new players. Uh, to my left is frequent contributor to On the Wink Podcast and editor of the Pheasants Forever Journal and po- pollinator uh, aficionado. That's right. Tom Carpenter, welcome. Yep, glad to be here. I love the topic of pollinators, both from a game bird perspective and a butterflies and bees perspective. I'm sort of a pollinator geek in my own yard <laughs> at home. In fact, I'm planting milkweed right now. I have to talk to Drew after then get some tips from him about starting milkweed uh, for for uh, for the monarchs. So. I've got I've got a to do list after the afterwards. Perfect. I'm glad it, glad your name came out of the yep. <laughs> out of the hat. And yep. uh, uh, Anthony Hauk, uh, director of public relations, also joins. Welcome uh, welcome back to On the Wing, Anthony. Howdy. I, you know, Carp has a he's got a French Brittany, so he's calling this. Uh, that's kind of I'm tilting everything towards his. I'm trying to make all the French jokes I can. <laughs> is aficionado is that is that French? I don't know. I think it's it Italian. should be. But I was we'll thinking, say it is. He's calling it. He's calling it part do. Do pollinator <laughs> part do. Yeah. And if if we're going French, you have to give give her the the true name of the dog, Epignol Breton. Yeah, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Thanks, thanks, Bob. Good to be here. <laughs> all right. And uh, our featured guest making his way um, all the way from Nebraska to join us. Drew Larson, the Director of Habitat Education Programs for Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever. Welcome to On the Wing Podcast, Drew. Thanks, Bob. I appreciate you having me on. Um, let's, uh, let's start. I guess the, the, the most important thing is to mention the fact that you're, you're a, a Pearl, Jam fan, Pearl Jam fanatic. You've traveled all over the country listening to Pearl Jam concerts. <laughs> you knew I would go here at some point. You just didn't know I would start topic. here, right? I can talk all day about this. How, how many Pearl Jam concerts have you seen? I think I'm up to uh, number 16. Uh, <laughs> Holy cow. 16 times. Have you ever left the country to watch Pearl Jam? I have not left the country yet. That's a bucket list at some point in time, but haven't done that yet. What's the best Pearl Jam concert you've ever seen? Oh, man. That's a tough one. Um, I'd probably have to say my last show was at Wrigley. Uh, two years ago, and so it took my 12-year-old daughter at the time so she could experience Pearl Jam and, and Wrigley Field and my wife. So that was that was probably the best one just because she was there and got to experience it, and she was uh, she was singing right along with me to most of the songs because she, <laughs> she has to listen to that most of the time around the house. So. Well, uh, all right, and uh, as a Pearl Jam fanatic, uh, I'm going to make a transition to Pollinators. <laughs> And what song would we play right now to make that transition? Oh, man. That's a good one. Uh, Come on now. <laughs> I just thought of this on, on, the, on the whim here. Boy. Um, Even flow. <laughs> that, there you go. I don't know. I just oh, threw that's one That's a pretty out good there. one. B-Girl. But there, right? There you right? go. B-Girl. Nice work, Bob. There you go. I'm, I'm also a Pearl Jam fanatic. All right. So we'll leave, we'll leave the Pearl we're, Jam talk for another <laughs> podcast. Think about we're still right. <laughs> yeah, you can't flow. be wrong. Yeah, that's, that was a good transition. We, we could title this Pearl Jam and Pollinators. <laughs> there and you take go. It from there. Yeah, jam, jelly, right? That's right. It's a little bit of a stretch, but 
Uh, all right. So, so what's your um, what's your background, Drew? Beyond the Pearl Jam uh, fanatic, you're a biologist by training. But let's start with where you grew up and, and kind of how you you got here at Pheasants. Forever. Yeah, I uh, grew up in a small town in South Central Nebraska, Minden, Nebraska. Uh, got really interested in, in chasing pheasants. It's in the kind of rainwater basin area of the state. There's a number of uh, waterfowl production areas right where I live. And so I cut my teeth uh, chasing roosters there without a dog for a number of years. Um, went to school at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. Got my major, just a general biology major. Uh, from there, I ended up chasing my girlfriend, now my <laughs> wife, down to Overland Park, Kansas. Um, she got a job down there as a teacher and uh, got on with the Missouri Department of Conservation as a uh, part-time hourly, making $7 an hour right out of, right out of college. But it was the greatest job ever. I learned, hmm. met a lot of great people, uh, learned a lot about wildlife conservation, did a lot of the on-the-ground type management, planting native grass, um, planting food plots, uh, prescribed burning, you name it. We kind of did it all there outside Kansas City. Um, so that was kind of where I started my career. was there for just about four years, and then my wife's from the same hometown, hmm. uh, Minden, and a uh, solid job, come across as a uh, Western – regional uh, biologist for pheasants forever. And I was like, man, that would be Western Nebraska, Western Nebraska. Right. Um, and I was like, man, that's like, that's like a dream job. I was like, I'm just going to put in, I just hope I can get an interview and just kind of get my name in the hat. And I got lucky enough to get an interview and uh, went to the interview, thought I bombed it. I thought there's no way that I'm going to get a phone call for them to hire me. And turned out I got offered the job about a week later. So the rest is kind of history, but <laughs> why'd you think you bombed it? Oh man, um, I thought I was doing well at the very beginning, uh-huh. and then the, um, so <laughs> Rick Young and Pete Berthelsen, uh uh-huh. were interviewing me, and they were just throwing softballs at the beginning. Thought I was doing pretty well, and then Pete came up with the, the last question in the interview. He's like, "Define conservation ethic for me," and I just totally bombed it. I was, you know, just wasn't a good answer, and I knew it, <laughs> and they knew it too. <laughs> Luckily, I think they tried to bail me out of that question towards the end, but. Mm. Um, now the rest is history. I started out there working with, uh, the chapters in Western Nebraska and, and got involved in a lot of the program work we were doing out there and, um, just loved it and ended up it's kind of where I'm at today is the, yeah, the, I mean, you're, you gotta be close to 14, 15 years, right? Just about 15. Yeah. yeah. I'd be 15 in October, I believe. Congratulations. That's yeah. a long run. It is. It is. And, and, uh, how long have you been? The director of habitat and education programs, uh, cause you made the switch away from regional rep into kind of the education and outreach department five, six years about ago? It's be about six years okay. I made that transition, yep. And I, I thought it was, a, it was great, another great opportunity. You know, I was just doing work in western Nebraska, and this kind of gave me the opportunity to work on a much larger scale. And that's really kind of what led me to the pollinator mm-hmm. um, issue was taking that job and at the timing was everything with um, what was going on with honeybees and monarch butterflies at the time. And from an education program standpoint, it made a lot of sense to kind of use that as our, our focal point pollinators when we're talking about habitat. Mm-hmm. Um, all right. So let's, let's start at the beginning. This is, this is not the first pollinator podcast, but for folks that might be turning into this one for the first time, let's connect the dots why Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever is talking pollinators. 
um, and dedicating not only one but two podcasts to the topic. Can, so what's pollinator habitat connected to pheasants and quail? Sure. Well, I'll, I'll even back up a little further because if you would have told me even six years ago that I'd be working on pollinator habitat and pollinators, I would have said you were crazy, you know. Um, but really, well, yeah, poll- but you're the guy who bombed an interview and didn't think you <laughs> that's true. Why, why that's would true. we that's, believe you? It's <laughs> obvious I don't know much. Um, but really, we've been doing pollinator habitat for a long time. We just never called it that, mm-hmm. you know. Um, we talk a lot about brooding habitat, which is just really early succession habitat. Uh, you know, broadleaf plants, flowering broadleaf plants, but there's ground access for birds to be able to forage for seeds and insects. We talked a lot about brood habitat. We just never, never called it pollinator habitat. And it really wasn't until, uh, you know, the colony collapse disorder with honeybees before we started to kind of talk a little bit more about pollinators because it was making national headlines. Would you even call that wildflowers and or forbs? Is it wildflowers, t- forbs? Absolutely. Yep, those um, are the names we're looking at. That's, that's the classification. Definitely. Yeah. Yep. Okay. And when we had um, Matt O'Connor on, you know, Matt really passionate and he talked a lot about ha- planting pollinator habitat and a lot very specific to pheasants. It, do the same biological values for pollinator habitat hold true with quail or can you make any difference in distinctions? I would say definitely yes, maybe even more so. Um, because quail, if you think about a baby quail chicken, how small they are, mm-hmm. they absolutely have to have access to bare ground in order to forage for seeds and insects those first six to eight weeks of life. So I would even say it's more important from a quail standpoint that they need that early succession habitat more so than even pheasants to a large degree. Somebody that hasn't seen a quail chick before, how small are we talking? Are we talking about the size of your <clears throat> thumb? Talk about if you uh, a bumblebee, since we're talking about pollinators, mm-hmm. you see bumblebees flying around the yard in the summertime, they're about the size of a bumblebee. Hmm. So you just think about that, and you look at a lot of our what we've called habitat or what people hunt in the fall, and just try to imagine yourself the size of a bumblebee on the ground walking around trying to find insects and seeds. I so, mean, a, so a quail egg is as small as a bumblebee. Yeah, is that, it's it, a, a big bumblebee, not a tiny yeah, one, but a but pretty good-sized bumblebee. They're pretty yep, small. They're pretty small. Wow. A bull migrator bumblebee. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, um, you know, when, when we start talking about our own programs built on top of pollinators, that's where you come in. You you essentially build the programs and then take them out to chapters. Is that accurate? Very synopsis? accurate. That was what I was tasked with doing when I took the habitat education specialist job at the time, was trying to build a habitat education program that our chapters could then deliver at the local level. So at the time, uh, I could say timing is a little bit of everything. It was right around the time when colony collapse disorder was happening. People were starting to notice the or pay attention to the decline in the monarch population. And in terms of trying to get, you know, talk about habitat to the general public and going to a school and talking about habitat, being able to lead with something like honeybees and monarchs is a little bit, you know, easier than maybe leading with pheasants or quail. That's, that's what I, one of the things I wanted to, so the assumption is that exactly what you said, that leading with pollinators opens the door into schools. When you did talk about pheasants and quail, did the door get shut because of the connection to hunting and guns, or is no. it just an easier conversation with pollinators? I think it's an easier conversation because when, when you talk pollinators specifically, I, I can make a direct connection to everybody in the room, mm. whether you hunt or not, right? right? If you eat 
fruits and vegetables. There's a there's a connection there when you're talking about honeybees. Uh, pheasants and quail. If you don't hunt pheasants or quail, you probably don't care about pheasants or quail. So it was a really really easy lead for me to go into schools and say, hey, we have this great pollinator program where we're going to teach people about conservation and habitat. And by the way, you know, when we do these events, we always talk about pheasants or quail, mm-hmm. and we're always looking to recruit uh, new hunters at the same time as well. Did you get a lot of questions early on about what what pheasants for what why why are you? We did, yeah, yeah, we absolutely did. But in in my mind, it's an easy answer. Like we mm-hmm. say, we you know, and to have healthy pheasant quail populations, you need great brood habitat, mm-hmm. and that is pollinator habitat. Uh, so it, to me, it's a really easy answer when somebody asks that question. You know, we're doing it for the right reasons because it benefits the birds and the bees. So the the first program that I can recall is the schoolyard habitat program. That that was kind of the the your first initial um, entry into schools with pheasants forever and quail forever. Is that? Yeah, right? it's that it's a youth pollinator habitat program is the title of it, and that was our very first program we rolled out. Uh, back in 2014. Okay. Um, and basically what that is, we were lucky enough to have some really great sponsors step up and provide some cash that we then turned around and, and offered grants uh, to our local chapters to go out and work with schools and other youth groups in their community to plant small pollinator habitat projects. So, so explain what, what happened at us. Uh, school pollinator project. Yeah, so what we tip, it's a, typically like a half-day event. So a local chapter will go out and work with um, a school or a teacher in their community. And what they'll do is we, we do have curriculum that they can provide the classroom so that they're learning about this stuff prior to the actual planting uh, okay. day, planting event. And the chapter will be responsible for, you know, finding a site. A lot of times it is at the school. That's one thing I have learned through this process is that how much ground is available at schools uh, to do these kind of projects on. And they're actually looking for ways to cut budget, you know, on mowing grass sure. and, and providing chemical on grass. So it's it's a great lead there, too, that you can actually save some money by providing this outdoor classroom for your students. Um, but a lot of times these projects actually happen on wildlife management areas in communities. And I love those projects as it gets kids out on those areas to know that they're available and they can use those later on in life. And they're open to the public so the public general public can kind of see what those what those folks are doing in the local community. There's a chapter, York, Pennsylvania, the York, Nebraska yes. chapter does this, is one, of, I don't know if they were one of the first, but they were, we covered them in Pheasants Forever Journal and they do that, they bust the kids out every year and then they, in the spring, and then they take them back out in the fall and show them in all its glory what they planted in the spring. It's pretty yeah, cool. Yeah, that's an example of a great, uh, that's a great chapter with really great project. I mean, they have the entire uh, the city's involved. It's actually on city property. Yep. Um, they've got the, the private school involved as well as well the public school. Hmm. The entire So every fourth grader in York, Nebraska gets to go through this program where they are provided curriculum. Uh, the chapter then puts on the, the planting day event where the kids will come to the planting day event. And we have a number of different education stations that they rotate around. So a couple that we have that I think are really good are some of our pollinator free food activities. So kids will get to put together their favorite kind of pizza that they like Mm -hmm. then you take away all the different ingredients that are made possible by insect pollination and basically they're left with crust (laughs) and meat so they're like wow that's that's not very good what's the stat one in three bites of food we eat is a result of pollination that's correct one in three so start thinking about that and pizza and tacos and 
and even dairy's impacted because we feed dairy cows alfalfa and mm. alfalfa needs you know leaf cutter alfalfa bees to create seed to plant alfalfa so it's i mean there's a lot of connections there too that aren't necessarily direct but um that would ha- be impacted so and, and then the kids go through what what are some of the other stations you, you mentioned this is pizza is one yeah the pollinator free foods is one um we have a plant id game where mm. we try to teach kids the you know the common names of the plants they're going to be planting on the pollinator project then we do a lot of um, uh, outreach to the community. So a lot of times we'll get local beekeepers to come in, hmm. and they can provide a really cool presentation on beekeeping. Um, we'll, we'll work a lot with state agencies to bring their education staff in, and they can run different activities. So there's a bunch of different education stations that they go through. Uh, once they get through those, we actually have them, the kids, actually plant the projects. So we have them hand broadcast seed uh, the projects, um, and then typically – we also involve some planting of plugs, plants that we usually have some signage on the property, and we'll kind of focus those plug plantings right around the sign so we get some blooming plants that first growing season uh, with a lot of those species. Uh, is it, how many schools are on multiple years of doing this? Man, I don't know if I can answer that particular question, but we absolutely encourage chapters. Um, so the, the York example, they have 20, it's a 20-acre uh, parcel that the city owns that they weren't doing anything with. Uh, the chapter approached them about this idea. They loved it. So they're doing about two acres, two to three acres a year. Huh. So this will be, I think, year five they've been doing this. Um, so you just think about that and how many, mm-hmm. every, every fourth grader in the, in the town gets to go through this uh, program. And they're, you know, they're up to well, well over 10, 15 acres right now of pretty high-quality pollinator habitat that's been planted by fourth graders. That's pretty is, cool. It's pretty cool. And they do it in the springtime? They do it in the springtime. And then just last year, they implemented the fall piece of it. So as fifth graders, they go back they, they go back, and they try to do monarch tagging to try to catch the fall migration of the monarchs coming south. Uh, so last year was the first year they did that. So the kids that planted the project can then go see kind of the fruits of their, of their labor as the monarchs are coming through, and they get to catch them and tag them, which is yes. pretty cool. They send them back home with seeds, too. I think they, they have a little army planning <laughs> around town, too, if I'm not mistaken. That is I, true. They, they do a good job. They, <laughs> they do really a great do. job. It's a yeah. great chapter, and they've really taken that it's uh, a great model. Uh, that project real seriously. Yep. Explain for us the um, connection between monarchs and milkweed. Yeah, so monarchs only lay their eggs on milkweed species. Now, there's like 120 different milkweed species across the country. But that's the only place they'll lay their eggs. That's the only thing the larva will eat is that, uh, okay. that milkweed leaf. Do so they, without milkweed, you know, you don't have monarchs. Do they focus on common milkweed, or do they, or do they not discriminate against milkweeds? Is a milkweed a milkweed, or do they like a certain species? That's of? a great question. Um, if you ask Chip Taylor that question, who's probably the lead monarch researcher in the country at the University of Kansas, he will tell you that. Common milkweed is probably the most important milkweed out there. Now, you could ask yourself, well, is it because it's the most common and the most abundant? <laughs> yeah. That probably answers your question, but they, they will lay their eggs. I've seen eggs and, and caterpillars on multiple species of milkweed. So, so is milkweed a seed that's always in these school projects and all the, the programs you put together? Yeah, absolutely, because we talk a lot about monarchs. Um, so we do include milkweed in all of our seed mixes for these, these particular projects. You had a question about milkweed. Yeah, well, it's sort of a sidebar, but as somebody who's sort of geeky on monarchs and pollinators, I want to get a good milkweed patch going. 
Do I disperse seed now that it's getting warm as we record this in spring? Or should I start it inside and have plants and transplant them and give them a head start? I, I think how big of area? Are well, you this planting? would be a front yard. Front like yard. A, yeah. I think you're yeah. probably in that case, that scenario, you're better off if you can uh, get them started as plants. You'll have a lot more success. Yep. Um, the success rate by seed is pretty small, yep. um, but you're, I think you're, you're a lot better off if you can either start the plants yourself in a greenhouse or there's more and more uh, nurseries that, you know, with the monarch issue that are actually growing native milkweed and offering that to the general public, which is really cool. So a guy can, a person could get it at, at nurseries too. There's more and more of them that are starting to get involved yep. in, in, in okay. growing milkweed. Okay. Question uh, answered. Yeah, <laughs> perfect. Uh, before I'm, I, I'm done. No. <laughs> before I leave the um, um, the school line of course, anything we missed on things that we're doing or our chapters are doing related to schools. That would be the the main thing. Okay. Um, we actually uh, on on that school topic. We actually I just we just wrote a grant through the Nebraska Environmental Trust to pilot a project called Milkweed in the Classroom. So we're gonna be just doing like you talked about carp. We're gonna basically make these kits, you know, have curriculum built around these kits, turnkey kits that teachers, the chapters can purchase for local classrooms and teachers can then uh, have their students grow milkweed in the classroom hmm. and then plant milkweed in gardens in their classroom or we'll make arrangements to have them planted on wildlife management areas in their community. And that's Nebraska specifically right now. It is right now. So the goal, um, you know, the Nebraska Environmental Trust there is a great yep. entity that helps us do lots of different things, but we're going to pilot it there. So I'm hoping in year, you know, two or three years down the road, we'll be able to take this program nationally. Okay. And if teachers listening want to explore opportunities to work with you, whether they're in York, Pennsylvania, or yeah. York, Nebraska, how do they reach you? <laughs> Uh, best way is email, uh, dlarsonpheasantsforever.org, and that's E-N. Yeah, Larson E-N. There yes. you go, fpheasantsforever.org. I mean, um, the point is you have to have conservationists in 10 or 20 years and 30 years. You know, someday you, Bob, are going to retire and Carp's going to retire. And, um, you know, obviously, like, you're hoping that hunters kind of take that lead. But we, you know, even, even in our mission, you know, education is a word in the Pheasants Forever mission. And, you know, so I think it is fair to point out to those listeners who are wondering just what's the goal of these mm -hmm. projects. You know, in, in the grand scheme of things, a two-acre, uh, two uh, you know, you, you can wonder about the, like, what does that change? And, you know, as just a metric, maybe it doesn't change a lot. I mean, on a small scale, it's, they're beautiful projects. There might not be wild birds on some of them. Some of them there are. But the point is kind of what the minds that we're changing, hopefully – it's in some ways it's probably like a milkweed seed itself, right? Like not every one of these kids, <laughs> it, you're right. I mean, it's, yeah. it's right. It's not every one of these kids is going to grow up and just be passionate about habitat or pheasants or quail, but we need some, and this is how we do it, you know, and th there's a big void to fill there. And I think, um, you know, I, th I think th this is one of the neatest things we do as an organization because y there's just really something about, formative years formative experiences you know obviously there's we got to figure out a strategy right of like keeping that going yeah how you you know the, those touch points when they're older when they're older when they're older so you're still communicating with them but these formative experiences i mean we know legitimately that there, there's kids that you know i mean this could be a kind of a life-altering experience right i mean that you that they 
they do this field day and if that like if that's where the spark happens right they might end up being a biologist right i mean this this is the type of thing we're talking about so i don't want to get too philosophical but it's like there's a lot happening in these you know these metrically small projects but there's a lot of things happening in students minds and i i think that's kind of the incredible part of it that you know uh that's why we're calling you know put the casting call out to teachers because we want to do more of these absolutely yeah it probably relates to why um you were asked that question in your interview what, what's your own conservation ethic yeah you yeah. have to answer that now. <laughs> you have to answer you that sort now. of made get, it your career mission to answer yeah. that question i would he, probably still fail answering that question. readers he's pulling out a sand county almanac he's just gonna, <laughs> he's just gonna read from it verbatim Aldo leopold larson <laughs> yeah wouldn't be near as good hey I, sure. i'll tell you i I don't know that I'd want to answer that one on the spot, but oh, you know, that's I'd, a tough one. But to your to your point, we'll I, make you answer it later. We'll give you some time to think. You make about a great it. one, and there's and there's a couple of things that have just kind of blown my mind a little bit as I go to lots of these events. And one is just the, the ignorance that you know pollinators make up a third of the food that we eat. Mm-hmm. I mean, it just kind of blows my mind that people don't know that. Another thing is even adults that attend these events, I'm kind of blown yeah. away that they're. You know, they attend and they weren't aware of a lot of these things that were going on. Or if you ask why, you know, why are honeybees and why are monarch butterflies declining in population? You know, the answer is never habitat, rarely. It's it's other things that they point to, um, uh, herbicide and pesticides and those kinds of things. But rarely is it habitat. So it gives us the opportunity to talk about the importance of habitat and conservation and how that, you know, impacts everybody not just food wise but you know clean water clean air all those things so. what why why is that i mean i'm not i'm not here to get into the you know the chemical argument nor just dismiss it but um you know why why do you think that habitat part of it it, it is always kind of maybe not like the highlight the highlight answer i mean it seems so obvious to me yeah i mean it's just education i mean you you said it earlier anthony and if, you know nobody's teaching kids about habitat and conservation especially at that age and yeah I mean, there are people that are out there doing that but i just uh, and on a grand grand scale i just don't think it's happening yeah so um you know another testimonial is you know my daughter is, is a good pretty good testimonial i've done my best and i'm failing miserably to turn her into an avid outdoorsman an outdoors woman and uh she just you know hunting is just not going to be her thing i don't think i mean I've gotten her out numerous times and she'll go with me with some arm twisting, but uh, <laughs> what she did love, I've, I've had her come to a couple of these projects and she got to the point where she'd go with me quite a bit to these. And finally I just kind of was like, Hey, you run one of these activities, you know what you're doing, you know, I was shorthanded one day and, <clears throat> and she loves doing that and just, you know, eats it up to that end of it. So for her that, you know, she'll always support someone's right to hunt, but more importantly, I think she understands the conservation piece behind it. And, you know, she'll, she'll vote that way at some point in time, hopefully. Um, Pollinators also have opened a bunch of doors with state agencies. You know, when we talk about Corners for Wildlife, for instance, that that was a new program that I think Nebraska was the place where that started, right? Yeah, it started way back in 1996 in Nebraska, or um, Pivot Corners, taking Pivot Corners out of production and planting them in the wildlife habitat. And now the state of Colorado mm-hmm. and Kansas now are both uh, have kind of taken that program and maybe even turned it more into a pollinator program. 
And that's really what they were doing in Nebraska, just planting really high, diverse mixtures. They were great for pollinators and for pheasants and quail. Because it was really small quantity of acres, but making it really, really high-quality habitat. Right. I mean, the average pivot corner is right around seven acres. So, um, you know, that's, again, small small acreage, but uh, from a pollinator standpoint, absolutely beneficial. Even, even pheasants, I still hunt a number of corners for wildlife projects in the south-central part of the state, and they do, they do produce pheasants. And what's the what's the mixture on that pivot corner? Is it a um, variety of grass, variety of forbs? Is there a specific standard that we're shooting for? Um, it, it's changed over the years. I can tell you that you know when we first started out, it was a lot of our mixtures were made up of you know seventy, eighty percent grass species and twenty percent forbs or even less in some cases and. In my 15-year career, that's probably the biggest change I've seen is just, you know, the, the change in what we recommend for you know, wildlife habitat mixes. And now it's, you know, we don't recommend anything over 50% grass hmm. in a mix. And I would, I would rec- recommend a lot less than that even uh, for a really high-quality wildlife mix. Um, it was way, way less grass than, than the forb component. And when we talked with uh, Matt O'Connor on the Pollinator Habitat Planning Podcast, we talked about you know, having early pollinating or early blooming flowers, midsummer, and then late. That's some of the components in your mixture in the corners program, right? So you have a constant bloom throughout the spring and summer months into the fall? Yep, that's correct. So when we, we design mixes, we try to make sure we've got enough species in each one of those bloom periods. So there's uh, blooming wildflowers throughout the entire growing season. Because monarchs in particular, they're, I mean, they're migrating uh, you know, south of September, October, and they need those late blooming species like sunflower species um, and asters to really be blooming during that time. That's uh, just fuel for them to make their way down to Mexico. So it's really important to make sure you have those species in the mix. You say like sunflowers, and I think about the first time, I think Rooster Road Trip was down in um, Nebraska, Kansas area. Um, we walked through kind of a patch of sunflower, and <clears throat> that's where the first covey of quail I've ever <laughs> hunted got up. So anytime I'm hunting, you know, the Great Plains, and I come up on a stand of sunflowers, it's like, you know, I get the gun <laughs> ready. <laughs> you know, I'm waiting for that dog to go on point and waiting for the, the you know, a swarm of bumblebees, <laughs> also known as a covey flush, yeah. right, covey rise. Um, I, I just equate the two, you know, not being around it all the time. I equate sunflowers and quail, like, like, you know, peanut butter and jelly. Absolutely. And I would, I'd probably say the same thing for pheasants even. I mean, in the fall, when I'm, when I'm looking for my spot to hunt, you know, opening weekend, I'm looking for the rankest looking field that mm. has zero, like very little grass. Um, cause that's where they're going to be early season. I, I think and that's where I find birds early season in those areas like that, that are early succession sunflower as opposed to just rank warm season grass. When I was in Nebraska in November, we got an early blizzard and it was early November and it was down in the, that, that South, probably down in your home country. And, um, the only thing, sta- it was blowing and it was snowing and the sunflowers were standing and that was where you, I went. And it was full of birds. Cause, and, and that brought up something that I wanted to uh, ask you about today, too, is, is this pollinator habitat is 
good for the bees and butterflies. It's good for broods, but it's important for winter too. That was the only thing standing in in this area that we won't name, but you can <laughs> but you can find it if you look on a map. You can find it. You'll yep. see it. But it was sunflower. <laughs> it was sunflowers where all the birds were, and it was pheasants at that point. And there were qua- there were quail there too. But it was. If not for pollinator habitat, it would have been a moonscape. Yeah, definitely. That stuff really holds up well in heavy yep. winters and can provide some of that cover that they need. And also a food source, too. People, you know, winter, you think in Nebraska, there's there's corn just about on every section. So they can usually find that food source. But they do rely on those native seeds, too. And mm-hmm. uh, seeds like sunflower seeds are an important component to the diet as well. As I bounce around the country a little bit and move north, look at South Dakota. They have a new program called the Saline Soil Initiative. Explain what the Saline Soil Initiative is and how pollinators fit into the, that South Dakota program. Yeah, so in both South Dakota and North Dakota, they have these soils, saline soils, that just aren't productive at all. And they've come up with a solution if they uh, plant perennial vegetation on these that can actually restore these sites uh, to where you can actually then plant uh, corn on corn and soybeans on them again over a long period of time. But in order to get them restored, you do have to plant that perennial vegetation. Um, so the state of South Dakota has kind of come up with a solution to this conservation issue where they're working with landowners and providing them some financial incentive to enroll their, their saline soils into this program and plant, plant this perennial vegetation. Um, and a few of the only things that really grow on this soil type are things like sweet clover and alfalfa. Hmm. And we are we are experimenting with some milkweed there to try to get milkweed to establish on these sites as well. But specifically, um, alfalfa and sweet clover grow very, very well. And sunflowers. We've seen some good, uh, good sunflower growth on these areas as well. Um, and that's really providing great pollinator habitat, you know, uh, during that time of year. Not only that, you know, South Dakota and North Dakota are the two top states for honeybees. And I think if you were to ask a beekeeper what their top two species were, um, it would probably be sweet clover and alfalfa. Hmm. So it's providing a really great honeybee forage as well. So for folks that have probably driven through South Dakota and see that black, you know, after the harvest, the the soil we're talking about looks like what you would expect out of saline, right? It's it's that white chalky stuff. And so when you plant the sweet clover and sort of pulls that saline down deeper into the into the soil right so you then over a period of what eight years you might be able to actually plant the crop back there yep that's that's the theory behind it mm-hmm. um it's just the the, the soils right now just the, the saline is not able to it's like almost a hard pan on it and it's not able to kind of soak down in the soil but planting these perennial plants that have really deep root systems helps pull that salinity down and mm. and just kind of uh, reestablish those soils so they can grow stuff on it the, the amazing thing is is that there's seven million of those acres that's that's it i mean that's the landscape in south dakota alone, in, right? in south dakota yep. alone and i think in eastern south dakota and and when you think of like just for a little perspective i mean there's there's only like one just a little over a million acres in crp in south, in south dakota, dakota. Yeah. So, I mean, you just like do that math. I mean, it's like, man, if you could, whatever you can recoup of those acres and turn them into, you can grow a lot of pheasants. It'll help a lot of pollinators too. But that, I mean, that's, a, that's an, that's a massive acreage number. That's it's landscape. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, roadsides for wildlife. Uh, you know, there, there's been studies of just 
how much pheasant nesting and for that matter waterfall nesting is done in the roadsides across the country i mean it's one of the um undisturbed areas of habitat during nesting season well don with the the advent of the pollinator um initiative across the country you know we've been able to even make those habitat corridors better through planting higher diversity mixtures right absolutely and that you know it was the one thing that kind of blew my mind as well i mean for years we were trying to get you know get state dot's to change their mowing regimes to not mow during the primary nesting season and i think we you know we fought really hard to make those things happen and we just could never really make any headway there Mm -hmm. and it wasn't until the monarch butterfly came along that you know state dot's now are changing their mowing regimes and not mowing during that growing season to allow that milkweed to to come up so it's been huge. The monarch butterfly has been huge to change um, the way state DOTs uh, a, a plant their roadsides now. They're not just planting grasses. They're actually planting pollinator habitat and just changing the way they do, do their mowing. Um, but as, like, I think it's like 28 million acres um, that state DOTs and mm. utility rights of ways that make up uh, across the country. That, so you think about that, that's that's a CRP yeah, program. That is kind of fascinating. I guess, you know, it kind of goes back to your earlier point in that, um, you, you know, you were talking about, I guess it's just what captivates us. And obviously I'm a hunter, so I'm like, I'm sitting here and thinking like, man, just do it for the birds. But, you know, the, 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 the more I, I, you know, I wrap my brain around it, it's like, you know, the monarch is, it's, it's like one of those, um, it's like one of those, I guess you'd say a signature species that just captivates people's attention, not, you know, beyond hunters, mm-hmm. which like, like, I mean, just like you think globally, like tigers and pandas and polar bears. And it's, it's like in that category. I mean, when, when, a, you know, I, I'd love it if people thought that about pheasants <laughs> and quail and some of us do, mm-hmm. right. We're sitting in this room. Um, but you know, that, that, that that monarch is just it's kind of in that category don't you don't you think i mean when you hear that it's like you work so long but then that you know that kind Mm -hmm. of crisis with that species comes along and i can see it i mean you know it it uh you you chase it with nets as a kid and Mm -hmm. try to catch it and it's the first thing you learn about probably like the circle of life and it's this and you know it's nationwide right it migrates it's there's a lot of reasons for it but um you know, it, it, it's, it's kind of that key. It's in that class, don't you think? Yeah, you think about uh, biologists use the term charismatic megafauna. Yeah. Right? Wait, right? Drew's yep. shaking his head. And, and it's exactly what you articulated as polar bears yeah. and lions. Well, the monarch is, the, the, you know, charismatic mini fauna. Right. You know? <laughs> but it has that much power. Because we all did learn about it in third third grade classes, and it not only connects with us intellectually, it connects to us emotionally, and I think that's why it's um, it's changed the game from a conservation perspective yeah. and, and generationally too. I guess that's the thing too, where it's like you cared about as a as a kid, and if you're a parent, mm-hmm. you care about your kids, and you can you know connect back and right. um, and obviously like. Like for me, I mean, I, I can think back just as, as a personal reference, like, um, you know, I didn't, I didn't really care about pheasants till I started hunting them, <laughs> you know, hmm. but I, but I do remember, you know, being five years old with my butterfly net and my little butterfly, 
um, you know, the little house. Mm-hmm. Like we had the little house, and you put the you put the uh, uh, the caterpillar in and watch the chrysalis form and all right. that kind of jazz. And you think about like generation before us, it was Rachel Carson and the frogs, right? And tadpoles and yeah. the evolution of the frog through a life cycle. For our generation, Gen X and millennials. It really is the the monarch that we learn about in school. Yep. Um, as you well, you got a baby boomer over here too. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I mean, yeah, well, would you? Yeah, absolutely. Equate it that way. Yeah, absolutely. It was. Uh, it was maybe it was where I grew up and the way I was raised, but it was part of my upbringing too. You know, those we didn't know anything about. Or at least my parents didn't te- didn't know anything about butterflies being challenged or anything like that. But they knew milkweed and monarchs were important, mm-hmm. and they taught us about them. And we 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 did the same projects too. We we'd go and look for the little the little bitty um, acorn eggs. You know, snip mm-hmm. them out, raise them, get the get the caterpillars. They're about the size of a piece of pencil lead, and raise them up and and get the chrysalis and and let them go. And um, it was it was formative, like Anthony yeah. said. It, 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 but I bet you didn't learn about the habitat. No, like, like we're talking about. Right, it. that's the piece I think that gets. Yeah, and, and I a didn't. lot of that going on, but that's that gets well, missed. I think a lot of times. But that was the thing in in, in southwestern Wisconsin in the 1970s. There's a lot of oddball corners, and there's a lot of milkweed, and there's a lot of there were still there was a lot of remnants left. And now you have to manage hard for them to have them on the landscape and. And that was one question I wanted to briefly ask Drew is, do you think there's been a, any, I don't know if what the right term is, landscape scale shifts in, in people's opinion of milkweed? Because milkweed used to be a bad, bad word among farmers. <laughs> and Anthony can attest to that. You, you probably have to go out and chop it, it down. It still is, and, but I'll let, I'll let Drew runs in those biologist <laughs> yeah. circles. I'll, I'll so, let him well, I love to tell a story. I tell a story a lot that, you know, back in, back, way back in the day when I was probably in junior high, me and a group of my buddies had a business where we'd go out and walk through bean fields. And chop I, it. I cut lots and lots of milkweed out of bean fields. This is pr- prior to Roundup yeah. Ready Soybeans. Um, so yeah, I mean, for the most part, farmers um, really despise milkweed. But I I, I do think that's starting to change. I mm-hmm. mean, I think the ag um, sector is really stepping up and trying to do their part. There's still work to be done there, but I, I've certainly seen a change in people's perspective of of milkweed and habitat. That's good to know because I I have that feeling too that that perspective has changed. But I don't know if my own opinion is coloring it in the people I talk to and hang with. And and farmer, I went and visited a farmer in Iowa uh, last last June. Wayne Fredericks, he's in Osage, yeah. Iowa, and he is a pollinator, uh, a butterfly. He's all in, and you know that sort of colors my my perception. And I just thought it was would be interesting to ask you that. So it's good to hear that you sort of see a shift, and, and that's good to know. Yep, there, there's there's still a lot of work to be yeah, done there, yeah. but there 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 are some changes being made. That's sure. good. That's good. Well, what do you see over the over the horizon in terms of opportunities for us to do more pollinator habitat with other programs? You know, energy, for instance, uh, is there opportunity as we look at solar, wind turbines, or something that we haven't really explored fully yet yeah the rights of way conversation is a good one i think there's a lot of opportunity there um, especially with solar 
sounds it's just a growing industry and those are happening on private lands um so it's just working on private landowners and those those solar farms can be as big as you know 20 acres and, and bigger in some cases so i think there's real opportunity to work with the solar industry to plant pollinator friendly habitat on these solar sites and a lot of them are really engaged in that process already which is great uh, but i think there where we can get involved is kind of help provide some of that technical assistance on how to plant uh, pollinator habitat is there pheasant and habitat pheasant and quail opportunity around solar i think if the site is big enough i i think there is opportunity there i, I think birds will take advantage of those areas if that's the only habitat around yeah. like a buffer around it or even within the panels i think even within the panels really i i really do think so if the site is big enough i i think they would there's i think minnesota is actually going to do some research on on ground nesting bird hmm. on birds and solar sites to see if they are using these uh, these areas with the kind of the growth that's taking place in minnesota so we're gonna we're, we are gonna find the answer to that question, but my gut tells me that if these sites are large enough, uh, that birds will find them and hmm. use them. I just have a vision of Anthony and I going out and hunting and saying, "Ant, you take row five. I'm gonna go down <laughs> row eight, and we're gonna zigzag a little bit." Yeah, it might be a they... little bit leery of that. <laughs> <laughs> well. Don't knock it till you try that's it. Right. That's, that's right. That's right. That's right. No, that is that is actually pretty fascinating. I, that, I'm, I'll be curious to see mm-hmm. that how how that pans out. Yeah, I I am too. Uh, say my gut it tells me that I think that they're large enough sites that birds will find them and use them. That's cool. And when you talk about right of ways, you're talking about telephone lines or utility lines. Utility lines, uh, uh, roadside right of ways. Mm-hmm. Um, you name it. Like I say, it makes up. Like, 28 million acres across the country so it's there Mm. there's a lot available there and you mentioned earlier that you know there's a ton of of documentation research out there that you know pheasants especially um will will nest and and pull off successful nests in roadsides Mm. so and and just the connectivity piece of it too i think is really important for lots of wildlife being able to connect to larger areas of of wildlife wildlife areas to you know together through these roadsides and utility right-of-ways cool what about railroad right-of-ways? I mean, I grew up hunting railroad right-of-ways. Now, my dad that would fall into that category for my, sure. I mean, talk about a lot of acreage and mileage. I mean, unbelievable, yep. you know, especially in the pheasant and quail range. So I don't know if there's anything going on with the railroad companies, but, man, that would seem like a big opportunity too. Yeah, the, definitely the rights-of-way as a sector and industry, they're they're really involved in the, in the monarch and pollinator issue. Um, so – I think there's lots of opportunity there, you know, where where we have some made some networking connections there. We've done some work, mm-hmm. but there's a lot of work to be done uh, on the roadside, yeah. the rights of waste side of things. All right. We've got uh, a fair number of events related uh, yeah. to pollinators coming up in the in the coming months. Uh, give us a kind of a chronological rundown. I know, you know, the, probably the first one is uh, at the Omaha Zoo. Yes. Right. And in, in er, see May eighteenth. What happens at uh, May eighteenth in Omaha? This is a cool deal. So um, for the listeners out there, if you've never been to the Henry Dorley Zoo in Omaha, I'd highly recommend it. It's one of the best zoos in the country. Um, so we have built a relationship with those folks, and um, we kind of pitched the idea to them to to host this what we call March for Monarchs event. So basically, what it is is they have a mile a mile long trail that we're going to take advantage of. And it's going to kind of replicate the monarch migration. So they're going to have different stops along that mile route. 
Uh, it's going to indicate where the monarch is. So they're going to start out in Mexico and go all the way to southern Canada. And they'll have different stops in between while they'll be educating people about what the monarch is doing during that particular time. Um, so it's just it's really um, it's a little bit of a fundraising event and also be a, a highly educational event that's very, very family friendly. And you'll be there. I will be there. So if folks listening to the podcast want to look you up, you'll be signing up Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever members. Right? Absolutely. We're going to be doing that. <laughs> All right, the Henry Dorley Zoo, Omaha, May 18th, 8 till 11 a.m. That's correct. Uh, all right, what's Miles for Monarchs with the Monarch Joint Venture? Yeah, so our, our good friends at the Monarch Joint Venture, we're going to be rolling out a new kind of uh, it's a fundraising and awareness campaign around the Monarch Butterfly and also a way to kind of encourage people to get out and do some uh, healthy stuff like running and, and walking. Uh, so basically, um, the Monarch Joint Venture has a really cool uh, online platform, fundraising platform, where people can basically go sign up and and set themselves a goal of however many miles they want to walk in a certain certain period of time or, or run, whatever they want to do. Um, and then there'll be a, a dollar amount tied to that. So if they say, I want to do 250 miles within this next year, they've agreed to raise $250 for Monarch Conservation that will then come back to the Monarch Joint Venture and Pheasants Forever. So... We're still in the process of rolling it out, but we're hoping to have it that that uh, campaign rolled out kind of by mid mid to late summer. Uh, okay. We're hoping. Can I hunt 250 miles instead? Uh, our tagline is walk, uh, run, bike, or paddle the migration. So, whatever you want to do to get outside and get some exercise and raise some awareness around monarch conservation, raise some money, um, you can do it. So the the duck folks are probably familiar with joint venture quote-unquote explain what the monarch joint venture is and yeah how, how we fit yeah so the monarch joint venture is just it's really a group of all the stakeholders uh, that, that want to get engaged in a monarch conservation so um, it started here in the university of minnesota great group of folks doing great work but they i mean if you want to look up any information on the monarch butterfly i mean they it is there on their site they house it they've kind of helped develop this national implementation plan so we kind of sat on the committee to help build that uh, national Im implementation plan. Um, we do a lot of um, training and education events with the Monarch Joint Venture as well. So they're one of the lead groups in the country. If you want to learn about monarch butterflies or monarch conservation, um, they have all that information or trying to put that information out to the masses. Gotcha. Uh, the last one I have on my list is Pollinator Week, June 17th through the 23rd. What happens on Pollinator Week? Well, Pollinator Week, um, the, our folks at the Pollinator Partnership got this going a number of years ago where they kind of highlight a whole week to raise awareness around pollinators and the, the benefits to pollinators to the human population. So there's obviously a ton of different events that go on um, during that week. Um, we've tried to uh, do some of our youth pollinator projects during that time frame, but it's just a little bit late in the year to be planting pollinator habitats. We've kind of had a hard time with that. Um, but I know that we're going to be working with your team to, to be putting out some information related to what we're doing around pollinators during that week. We're still um, going to celebrate it. We're going to have a cake. We're going to do the whole deal. Absolutely. <laughs> yep. So look for uh, pollinator content on pheasantsforever.org, quailforever.org, all of our social media channels, June 17th through the 23rd. That's correct. Maybe we'll be talking about it again then, too. There, there might be a future podcast specifically devoted to pollinator week that'd be great uh what what do we miss i think you pretty much covered it 
Um, <laughs> we nailed it. We nailed it. <laughs> Closing thoughts, Carp. Anything that uh, jumps out to you um, on the pollinator conversation front? I'm always willing to talk pollinators because <laughs> it, it leads into pheasants and quail, and it, it's all intertwined. And it's to me, that's conservation ethic right there. Is It's not one thing. It's not another thing. It's not mine. It's not yours. It's ours. That's as simple as I can say, conservation ethic. Um, He'd have bombed having, interview. Having, <laughs> taken, having taken Wildlife Ecology 118, which is Aldo Leopold's Wildlife Ecology class at the University of Wisconsin. So I think we talked uh, conservation ethic today. So I love the talk. I think we should have honey cake for Pollinator Week. <laughs> That's my vote for our, our official cake for Pollinator Week. And I have, to, I have to go start planting my milkweed seeds, so I have my little milkweed seedlings. So that's what I got out of all this. But I, I, I love the talk. It's great. It's always great talking pollinators, and um, it's great having Drew here for it. Any closing thoughts, Anthony? Brome is dead. <laughs> that's, that's my conservation ethic. The more diverse, the better. I like that. How's that? <laughs> I'm with you. That, I mean, that, <laughs> my closing thought is connected to that conservation ethic, too. You, Drew, you mentioned that that's the question you feel like you sort of uh, fumbled in the interview. And it, I think that's a tough question to answer, especially when you, you end up living it, right? Like, when, you, when you have a career in, in an organization like this or as a biologist, you, it's hard to articulate something that's become your lifestyle, and that's it is. right. And that's essentially what you're doing as the habitat education program director. You're you're embodying <laughs> a lifestyle, right? <laughs> Through conservation. Ethics. I hope so. And trying to um, articulate that sometimes can be a challenge. And while you maybe fumbled the question in the interview process, <laughs> right, you're Bombed here, it. you're here and you're <laughs> on the cutting edge of, you know, something that's incredibly innovative that um, whether you care about pheasants, quail, monarchs, pollinators, it connects the link for all the web of yeah. life to us as humans. And when you can create those bonds to all those sort of things, it makes us all that much more um, relevant as an organization to, to people beyond the blaze orange army that um, is the center of the bullseye, but not the only audience. Definitely. That's that's my biggest goal. And I guess one of the, if I could, if there's time, you know, the one piece we didn't talk about is hunter recruitment yeah. and how this really does tie into it. And I can tell you a, a big goal of mine through a lot of this stuff is, you know, a, a hunter supported group like pheasants forever is being able to articulate what we do for conservation that impacts everybody. Yeah. I mean, if you look at hunting in general and you know, when it does make the headlines, um, national headlines, it's usually not good. And you know, I'm hoping something like this where we can educate people about what we're doing from a conservation standpoint, that it can put a little bit more of a positive light spin on, on hunters. That's a terrific closing, closing comment because it is, uh, you know, we like to think of ourselves as the America's original environmental movement. Yep. And this pollinator component is reinvigorating that, um, that um, theology, if you will, or ideology. So thank you. Thanks for coming in. Thanks for having me. All right, ladies and gentlemen, thank you for listening to this episode of Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever's 
On the Wing podcast, uh, Drew Larson. Hit him up with questions at DLarson, that's E-N, at pheasantsforever.org. If you got a class, a school, um, if you're an agency, right away organization, business that's interested in pollinators, um, we want to work with you. We want to we want to do pollinator habitat for the benefits of the birds, the bees, and the butterflies. Tune in to the next episode of On the Wing Podcast right here, and we'll talk to you down the line. Thank you. <laughs>